Welcome to the Psychology of Case Management podcast, the show that helps you use psychological ideas to strengthen your relationship with your catastrophically injured clients and their professional network, so you can achieve more for your clients and feel more fulfilled in your role. Today we have Dr. Alice Nichols, um, our PsychWorks associate, who I'm sure you will have heard on uh, some of our other podcasts, talking today about compassion-focused therapy, which is a bit of a specialism, dare I say, Dr. Alice Nichols, for you in the work that you do, not just for us, but in other, um, other aspects of your professional life as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's a model I really like. I use it when you do use it a lot. Right. So, um, so tell us, well, I suppose the first thing is, um, how did you come across it? Because it's a relatively new model in that it's a takeoff from a traditional model called CBT that everyone generally, I'm sure, in our audience will have known cognitive behavioural therapy. But I mean, certainly when I was at training, it wasn't something that was particularly big or talked about, although that was quite a long time ago now. But, you know, you, you weren't far behind me, I don't think, in terms of training. So um, no, I wasn't. get into it. I was really lucky, actually. I had a placement in oncology in my <sighs> final year of training, which isn't a particularly normal place to have a, a placement as a training psychologist. But yeah, I had this placement in oncology and my supervisor there used it a lot. And it was a model that just really fit when you were working with people who had yeah. just received like a really difficult diagnosis or, you know, we're living, we're living with, with, with terminal illness. Um, oh, it was gosh. a really, really helpful model. Yeah. So do you, do you know a bit about the history of CFT and where it came from and how it perhaps links to something that people might be more familiar with in the form of CBT? Yeah. So Paul Gilbert um, is or was a CBT therapist and he found that um, CBT for depression is really very effective except with a certain group of clients. And when he looked at this group of clients and what they seemed to find difficult about CBT, it was that the voice they were using when they were talking to themselves, when they were using the thought-challenging techniques, sort of the tone of the voice they were using was a really critical voice. Um, mm. And actually he realised the whole internal kind of dialogue was really quite critical, quite a critical way of talking to themselves. And there was quite a lot of shame as well that they, they carried about themselves. And for those people, they just didn't react particularly well. They didn't respond in the way you'd hope um, someone would respond to CBT for depression. So he developed this, this new model that, um, I mean, people often talk about it as something that you use alongside CBT, but really as a model in its own right, as a way of, of helping those clients with the, the high level of shame and self-criticism. It's, it's, it's really got a really nice evolutionary kind of basis to it as well. So it, it draws on an awful lot of stuff that we know about the brain and the way the brain works. Uh, so it's got a really nice scientific basis too. Okay, so my next question would naturally then be, I suppose, is tell us about the theory. It's, it's really interesting, I think. Okay, so the, so the theory really starts with um, evolutionary, um, with, with our evolutionary background. So we've evolved from, um, from reptiles through to mammals and through to humans. And at each stage, our brain has just had a different bit added on. Um, it's not had a complete redesign. And that means that our motivation, we still have some really basic motivational systems. And those are, I'll go into more detail in a minute, but those are threat, drive, and soothing. Now, mm. the threat and the drive system um, are the ones that we share with reptiles. So 
reptiles are motivated by threat, which is to avoid or escape danger, and drive, which is to gather resources, so food and shelter. And what um, our mammalian brain then added on to that was the drive to, I'm going to call it the soothing system, but it's, it's a, a, a motivator to rest, digest, to build affectionate bonds with other mammals, which, which actually helped our uh, survival as a species because it, it meant that we um, were, were caring for our young and um, that we were caring for other members of our community, which, which meant we were able to evolve even further as a species and to um, achieve amazing things together. Mm. Um, so those three systems, threat, drive and soothing, we share with all mammals. What's different for us to the other mammals is we have the ability to think about it all. So if you're a rabbit and you've run away from a fox, so your threat system's been motivated, been, been um, engaged, you run away from the fox and you, so you're, you've got rid of the danger, you've escaped the danger, and then you've had enough to eat and you've got somewhere nice to stay for the night, then actually your, your drive system has been activated and you've, you've satisfied it all. You will automatically go into the soothing states. You will automatically rest and relax and play with the other rabbits um, and build relationships and you know just have it like a, have a nice relaxed fun time there won't be anything that you're trying to achieve in that time and you won't be trying to es- escape any threat um mm. what the rabbit doesn't do is sit there and think about that fox that they ran away from today and wonder if they're going to see it again tomorrow and wonder if they should go a different route and wonder if the other bunnies are judging them for the way they dealt with the fox and actually yeah. Should they go and plant some more grass so that there'll be some grass for, you know, for the other bunnies another day? They're not thinking about the future and they're not thinking about the past. Um, Mm. And because of that, they are just automatically in this lovely, soothing state. Mm. Whereas for humans... (laughs) Us, on the other hand. (laughs) Tell us about what we do that doesn't help. (laughs) It's just so much more complicated. So Mm. we have this amazing ability to think about the past and learn from it and to think about the future and to plan and that obviously means we've achieved lots of really great stuff it's not all bad but it also means that we can um sit and think about something that was very difficult or about how we're worried we've offended somebody and we can worry about how we might not have done enough work for an exam and that we're going to fail it and actually when we're doing that we are putting ourselves in threat and we're maintaining that threat state all the time, mm. or not all the time, but we could, you know, potentially we can maintain that threat system a lot of the time. By and simply having these cognitive thoughts about what we could have done, should have done, will be doing, should be yeah. doing. Wow, and, okay. And of course, in personal injury, it's not always, um, we're not always doing it on purpose either. If we've been through a trauma, mm. then actually that will be something that might be coming up, although we're not, we're not, wanting it to it it will be coming up because that's the way our brain processes trauma um and that might be some rumination around that too so actually we're being put into threat by memories of difficult traumatic events as well so yeah that threat system can be activated a lot of the time the thing about all these systems is that when one of them is activated it kind of deactivates the other ones so um the threat response is associated with with cortisol um stress hormone and the soothing system is associated with uh, oxytocin, the, mm. the, love, the love hormone, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually will deactivate each other. And um, there's actually um, evidence of people 
activating their soothing systems and the rise in oxytocin inhibiting the production of cortisol. And equally, drive, the drive system is associated with dopamine. So if you achieve something, and, you know, with rabbits, we talked about getting enough grass to eat, but actually for us, drive is about ticking things off your to-do list. It's about getting stuff from the supermarket. It's about working towards an exam or, I don't know, trying to get some staff in to cover a shift. That's all drive stuff. And we get a dopamine hit every time we do that. And that dopamine hit actually inhibits the cortisol threat system temporarily. So, so you get a dopamine hit and you feel better. And actually that's been set up in an evolutionary way because you know if you are in threat and you're escaping danger and you achieve a place of safety, then actually you're, you're getting like a little um, reward, like a, a chemical reward for having done that. Your drive, your drive system was working in a way that actually solved the problem that was causing the threat system to be activated in the first place. But what we do as humans is we kind of, it's almost like a brain hack. So we go into drive and do something completely unrelated. So when I was in oncology, we'd, we'd see people who've got these, um, these like really life-changing diagnoses. Um, maybe they've been told they've not got very long to live. And they'd go home and rather than do, I guess, the stuff I imagined they might do, which was to go and be with their children and to, you know, to have a cry and to hug, to hug their, their loved ones. They went home and sorted out their shoe cupboard right. or rearranged um, the furniture or um, decided to, I don't know, to start a blog. Um, <laughs> or uh, in the case of some of our um, families, I'm thinking, they uh, might get on the phone to litigating solicitors or whatever and, and uh, or the email or something and, and just start to you know catching up with with all the work related stuff so there there is a sort oh, exactly. of exactly yeah uh, and we see this in injury yeah, yeah they'll get really yeah. kind of involved in something mm. and they'll think that they need to do this they need to get this amazing i don't know this amazing product or um yeah purchase budgeting is a, is a big thing that comes up as well actually yeah so so there is a, a maladaptive version of drive that does still give you the dopamine hit, but the that sense of excitement and um, joy, I suppose. But it may not always. Well, they're in a threat drive loop, so I guess the trouble uh, is, is okay, that they've not right. really like they've not really escaped the, the actual threat. So the thing that was causing their cortisol to go up in the short term mm-hmm. um, is something that either they're not dealing with, or that they there is nothing they can do about it right now, and that, you know that is often the case. But yeah, that they are kind of coping with it by going into drive. It makes them feel better. You know, it may in the short term, it makes us all feel better. I think we've all mm. we've all kind of relate. I know to the that. impact of Amazon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, you think yeah. about if you've got like a difficult phone call to make or something like that, suddenly yeah. it becomes really like the the washing up the, the dishes suddenly becomes really attractive, doesn't it? Mm. Like the things that suddenly become attractive, like rather than deal with like the nasty threat. And you are, you're getting a dopamine hit when you're doing those things, even if they're not actually helping you, um, mm. you're getting this dopamine hit. And, and that is actually inhibiting your cortisol. But as soon as you've stopped doing it, that problem, that yeah. threat is still there. So actually it's, it's temporary. And then you go back into threat. And again, if you're avoiding the threat and you, or you're, you know, you're, you're not able to do that and do that, there's a real risk you're just going to loop back into drive. And what we see is just people being absolutely exhausted by that absolutely exhausted I'm guessing this happens to people out that haven't been injured 
with that yeah. this is actually something that happens to the po- the general population so our audience members may feel that this is actually uh, kind of a familiar thing that might happen to them even um, yeah. not to and say think- that trauma is is driving the threat necessarily but there is a mm. but, the, but there is the, the loop exists in different in different magnitudes I guess that's it and actually if you've got a critical internal voice which I think I do think a lot of us in this country were, were probably raised to have in some respect. I do think it was almost a parenting style um, mm. in England was to kind of be quite critical of your children and expect them to make themselves better because of it. And we internalise those voices. So a lot of us do have a critical voice in our heads. So saying, oh, you're not being a very good case manager or actually if you were a better solicitor, you would have sorted that out already. Mm. Now that's going on in your own head. Um, and so you're, you're activating your own threat system. And because your threat system's activated, you're then going into drive and you're, you're doing lots of stuff. Mm. Um, and it's really easy to get burnt out like that. So, and, and this is where compassion comes in because it makes it sound like a very simple therapy, but it's really not it, mm. because it's like a really easy thing to say and not a very easy thing to do because it goes I against agree. so much of our culture and of the way we've been raised. And I think we're, we're, we're set, like you say, when you say cultural, um, I think you're, I think we're, we're, you know, particularly if we're trying to support other people mm-hmm. and we are in the helping profession, I, I wonder if we are a little bit more prone uh, at yeah. risk of, of developing this threat drive loop as you talk about it. Um, and that compassion is quite a hard thing to do by yeah. nature of the, the way we've decided to, to, to sort of, you know, the, the, the field that we've decided to work in. Yeah. I, I think when our clients are, have unmet needs, I think it's very easy to get activated, get our threat system activated by mm. that. And I think what we see in big institutions where this goes wrong is, is like you develop like a box ticking culture to kind of try and contain the feelings of threat and to give people a little dopamine boost. But it means that people aren't connecting. They're not soothing the clients. They are, mm-hmm. they're going into drive and they're ticking boxes because it makes them feel better. You know, it's much easier to develop a nice, to, to, you know, to, to write a nice care plan than to connect with what's going on on an emotional level because that's threatening. So, so we can sometimes see people doing rather than really kind of being with what's going on. Yeah. Uh, like frantically trying to get stuff done that maybe isn't as important as it feels, but because it, it's anything than sit with the threat of the client's distress. Or indeed your own distress of yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Ah. So how do you break out of this loop? This feels like a, a almost self-destructive, or, or you can imagine this sort of downward spiral with it and like you say, burnt out. That that those are those are big words and, and kind of outcomes that you can see that, that are almost inevitable. What do we do to make our soothing um, system kind of trump, if you like, uh, that threat drive loop? I I know that case managers and um, solicitors listening will want to say, what can I do to help the client? But it Mm. it starts so much with how we are inside our own heads, because if our threat systems are activated, they're going to activate other people's threat systems. You know, it's such a basic part of who we are as, as human beings to kind of to be picking up on threat and I know people are going to wince as I say it but being compassionate towards yourself is the first step it's like listening to how you're talking in your head and just thinking is there a is there like a kinder way I could say that to myself is there a more compassionate way I could say that to myself because yeah. suddenly you're not you're not criticizing yourself and actually you're starting to to just be more nurturing towards yourself, which is going to activate your soothing system a little bit. 
Yeah. And that's the trick is that your soothing system, if you're activating that, you're also inhibiting your threat system and your drive system. Um, mm. You know, that oxytocin going up makes the dopamine and the cortisol go down. Mm. And it's not something we're used to doing. It's something that takes a lot of practice and training. Unless, I mean, unless, I mean, now I might be speaking to the wrong people, you know, you might be able to do that. But it's something that a lot of people find really hard to, yeah. you know, to actually be compassionate and to be kind to yourself in times of difficulty. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, to activate that super system. And it's not just about being kind to yourself. It might be that, that there are lots of other ways of activating that that soothing system so it might be that there's something you can do that you could sit and I don't know listen to your favorite song or that you could sit and you could rub some hand cream in but in a way that you're you know you're doing something kind for yourself so you know you're making an effort to be soothing and to be kind Mm. and that will bring down that threat response it doesn't have to be like that you take up um meditating and do an yeah, hour exactly. a day yeah yeah it doesn't have to be something big or um even that's uh, it, it's something I mean just rubbing hand but do you know what I feel I love the feel of my hands after I've uh, put some a little bit I've got a little pot of hand cream here that I'm touching at the moment as I talk and it's such a lovely smell and it just makes me so happy yeah. <laughs> to um to just rub a little bit and I do it sparingly because it's such a small part um but it's it's such a nice thing to do it really is um so it's really interesting that that it doesn't have to be something big and grand and ostentatious I suppose what you may also say later on is that it's uh it's got to be sustainable as well and actually we could do pretty much anything we do in our lives Mm. in a compassionate way so you could brush your teeth in a compassionate way and you know you could be saying to yourself as you're brushing your, your teeth I'm doing this for myself because I care about myself and I know this Mm -hmm. is like a wise caring thing to do I think some people think when I say compassion that I mean you know letting yourself off the hook and you know being a bit soft on yourself certainly there is perhaps a bit of softening that needs to happen but actually to be compassionate is to be wise and to be strong as well as to be kind it is to think about what needs to happen and what's going to make things better and then you know to act on it but, you know, through that that real genuine desire to relieve suffering, that genuine desire to be kind and caring and connecting. No, I, I can I can see that it's such a there's a neurological element to it. There's a, you know, in terms of our, our frontal lobes and our, you know, threat systems and our mammalian brains and some of the things that you've spoken about. But there's also something that feels like there's something about the universality of this idea of compassion that it could be the case whether you're a client or family member or professional working with people who have injuries do it to yourself do it to others um Mm. ability feels like it doesn't come into it necessarily in terms of of cognitive ability i'm thinking about our brain injured clients in particular um, or children who may not have obviously the um experience and and cognitive and emotional structures that we as adults have that feels like there's something that's quite sort of universal about it is is that fair to say I really think that yeah that that's true we it it works on a cognitive level and you can get people to be thinking about this but it also works just by observing someone 
who maybe doesn't have the skills to communicate how they're feeling, but you can observe them and you can kind of tell if someone's in threat, if they're looking anxious or angry or agitated, then they're in threat. And you can also start to identify things that they find soothing. Um, you know, you can be speaking to them in a soothing voice and, you know, noticing your own kind of threat state and, and thinking about that when you're working with them. Something that um, I really liked when we were working in, in, in oncology was that often we'd get called by the doctors or nurses because they had a really distressed client on the ward. So someone who was laying in bed who was really upset and they just didn't really know what to do with them. And they would call us and we'd go and see them. And actually, it felt like the right thing to do was to sit and hold their hand. And mm. a lot of psychological models maybe wouldn't have given you a theoretical basis for that. And you would have been saying, you know, querying why, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? Um, yeah, but actually, yeah. this compassion-focused therapy model gave you a, a reason to sit and hold someone's hand. You know, you're connecting, you're offering comfort, you're being present with someone in their suffering and showing like a genuine desire to, to ease that suffering you know you're stimulating your oxytocin release and you're you're decreasing their cortisol levels when you do that so you so that's like an application of the model that actually mm. I mean you know we are we are you know giving a theoretical reason for doing something that just feels like the human thing to do but that's what people need you know when they're in distress and when they're in threat is mm. for us to be that human you know, to show them human kindness and compassion yeah. And I guess in case management, certainly, and in, I guess personal injury world in general, whether you're a case manager, a solicitor, therapist, carer, there is always going to be a need for the equivalent of holding someone's hand. It's not practical as we're often driven by, you know, kind of goal being goal oriented and evidence based, etc. Sometimes just being and sitting is, from what you're saying, is just what the what is needed to thwart this threat or drive loop and mm. to just soothe a client or oneself to indeed if if one is feeling in themselves or noticing in themselves um a sense of fatigue or burnout or something like this that that needs a, an address it really for me it's, it's changing my my view of slowing down a little bit um mm. and having like you say a, a theoretical framework that actually says that you may need to do this once in a while and it's okay to do it and in fact it's the right thing to do because your yeah. intuition might be saying it's absolutely the right thing to do but yeah I don't know if I can do it am I allowed to do the case can, can a solicitor do this I'm yeah. a carer I can't be seen to be yeah. you know doing something that's you know sort of like you know not uh, sort of exactly according to the care plan obviously if, there, if there's risk involved that's a different matter but in terms of just sitting and being with a client it's um there's a real role for that and yeah. a call for that and a need there really is and and yeah and if if we get drawn into thinking we need to be doing all the time I, I think mm -hmm. there's there's a risk that we are avoiding something when we're doing that so yeah, yeah. definitely if you're finding this urge, you know, to sort of think, oh, I need to solve this problem. I need to do something about it. It's worth taking us taking a step back and and just just querying what you know what the threat is. And are you actually dealing with the threat, or is this you trying to deactivate your threat system by doing? Mm -hmm. And actually, if you're if that's what you're doing, then then consider doing something that would be soothing instead. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And because I guess like, the bottom line is, as you've said, clients who are stuck in that loop will just maintain that level of trauma that perhaps is 
kicking off that loop in the first place and and perpetuating it and or uh, uh, has caused that loop to kick off I suppose but equally as us as professionals in the personal injury world if we don't I suppose think about this on a serious level we are going to be stressed to the max it could be an argument for uh, thinking about our own or a formulation for us to think about our own stress our own sense of uh, longevity in the work we do because we I would have thought none of us want to be burnt out and that there there is a way out which is tremendous to hear and I know it's the c word compassion which is like I say banded about an awful lot it may feel like it's it's kind of you know yet another buzzword that people use but the way you've described it feels like there you know that it's it's an absolute crucial element it's not just a buzzword it's not just to sound fashionable or to to get people's attention this this actually has a role and it may well be the answer for mm. some people who are in that perpetual sense of stress be yeah. it um, in terms of threat or in terms of uh, i suppose overdrive for want of a better word which isn't none of which is sustainable yeah. ultimately so okay so what what tips could you give us as a personal injury um, group of people listening to this model and thinking, well, my goodness, this could be very helpful. What, say, two or three ideas would you give us as an audience around using compassion-focused therapy in the work we do, whether that's for ourselves or directly with our clients? So I think something that we've already talked about quite a lot today is to notice when you're in a threat drive loop or when your clients are in a threat drive loop or the care team or the family. So if someone's very busy, very stressed, they're talking about feeling burnt out or, you know, at risk of burning out. And especially if they're doing things that don't really seem to be related to the problem, you know, think about what is the real threat um, and what can actually be done about it. And if, can't do anything about it or they can't do anything about it then encouraging them to engage in some soothing activities um rather than you know jumping into this drive state Mm. so yeah that's my first my first top tip um my next one would be to think about how balanced yours or again your clients threat drive and soothing systems are it's really likely that soothing systems is underactivated, and so if it is, you can start to just gradually introduce tiny bits of soothing into your life. Like we said earlier, it doesn't have to mean that you're doing like an hour's meditation a day. It could, although, you know, if you want to do great, but it could be that you're just doing a couple of things a day and just being a bit more mindful and a bit kinder to yourself when you do them. It might be that you are just stopping every now and then and thinking about what you need. You know, do you need to have a drink? Do you need, do you need to eat something? Um, do you need a rest? And actually, you know, being kind of wise and kind to yourself in in like just providing that for yourself. Mm. The other thing that we know can make a difference is just remembering tiny acts of kindness that have occurred throughout your day. So times when you've done something kind for someone else and times when people have done things that were kind for you. And um, it could just be that someone held the door open for you or someone let you out of a junction while you were driving somewhere. Or that someone made you a cup of tea or that someone sent you a full text message. You know, it doesn't have to be something big, but but just just sitting there and, you know, spending a couple of minutes thinking about some acts of kindness that occurred during your day will stimulate that same area of your brain, which is what we want to um, to activate a bit more. 
Yes. And I think we've said it before, haven't we, that it, it doesn't have to be big. Passion feels like a very big yeah. word and, and soothing feels like can make some people feel quite uncomfortable about yeah. that sort of contentment or you know, nurture. These, are, these sound like big words, but actually when you break it down as you have, they, 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 they sort of sound a bit more manageable somehow. That's um, a really nice point. I think people can feel um, quite threatened by the idea of going into the soothing state. You know, maybe you've been mm-hmm. criticised for relaxing or being lazy in the past, or you've got some like negative associations with the idea of being kind to yourself. So to start small will kind of gradually um, expose you to that feeling um, without it being so big that one, it feels like a too big a task, but two, it potentially sets off your threat system because of, you know, because of that kind of complicated learning history. Mm. Yeah, no, I see that. See, I mean, it's, it's so linked to who we are as individuals and what our experiences are. I know that's exactly what psychology is all about, but you can really see how it feeds into the theory that you've talked about, I mean, compassion-focused therapy, can, I can imagine being very off-putting, but actually when you think of it as a threat-drive-soothing system mm-hmm. um, that you know, has um, different motivations attached to those different systems and different, therefore, emotions that are linked to those systems, it kind of, it makes an awful lot of sense. And it, it does seem like it has a lot of relevance with our, with our personal injury clients. And I, um, I, I would really urge everyone to think about maybe frame some of the experiences that they've had or have with their personal injury clients, you know, whatever our roles are with those clients, and maybe see if there's any mileage in thinking about CFT, compassion-focused therapy, as a way to think about the concept of threat in our clients and I guess uh, maybe more relevant to our clients, we might say trauma, right? Which is, you know, a constant sense of threat that then drives various sort of dopamine require, you know, dopamine causing or dopamine hits that bring about a sense of relief, temporary relief. But actually, it's not really the answer. Um, and all, often, as we were saying before, it can be quite maladaptive in what we see in our clients and, and how we need to sort of think about strengthening or, or Im- improving the, the soothing system um, mm. with, with our clients and how that would be such a beneficial thing to do. And as you've highlighted with the sort of notice and balance sort of ideas that you've shared just now, very, very helpful. And actually, it's not about removing threat. It's no. just about increasing soothe, soothing. Yeah, we just want everything to be a bit balanced. And that's all we're really mm. aiming for. Um, mm. And yeah, and in this client group particularly, we do see that overactivation of threat and underactivation of soothing. Yeah, no, I, I, I see that very much. That's, that's really helpful. My third top tip is to fight criticism with compassion. So I've noticed that we often get clients um, or their, their parents or even members of the, the staff team who become quite critical of other professionals involved in the case. And what I just think is a really useful application of this model is to think about people who are being critical as people who are in threat. And once you realise that, it's much easier to be compassionate towards them. Mm-hmm. So if you've got you know, a, a client or a family member or a staff member who is, is being highly critical, then actually you know, realising they're in threat and 
being compassionate towards them, which isn't always very easy because actually it does tend to activate our own threat systems. If someone is, is criticizing us or we feel they're attacking us in some way, we kind of want to get defensive and, and like launch a counter attack or be defensive back. Hmm. And the reality of that is it just kind of exacerbates this threat cycle that's going on. So if we can be compassionate and realize that their criticism is coming from a place of, of fear or mm. anger, um, mm. but, but we're talking about fear really, then um, it's much easier to be kind and compassionate and soothing. And actually, you know, what that looks like is probably just listening and understanding and trying to understand what they're so upset about and what, what they are really, up, you know, what's really the problem. Um, when, and when people feel heard and they feel like someone's listened to them and been kind to them, they are much more likely to, to drop out of that threat state and into a more soothed state. Um, when you can then, you know, do some really useful work with them. The other thing is when people are in that threat state, when people are critical of others, it's a direct reflection of how critical they are of themselves. Mm -hmm. So actually, if someone is really critical about other people, they're probably doing that same thing to themselves, probably worse. So again, they probably need some help with activating their soothing system. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And that's really, that's a really interesting and really helpful observation that it's, it's very helpful to think about how how people respond in the 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 world and how that might be indicative of what might actually be going on for them on the inside on in their internal world and so adding fuel to that fire is not actually going to help by as you say sort of responding in a sort of defensive or an attacking way mm. actually to break that cycle in a way to bring in something that is perhaps more soothing not only to yourself even though it might not feel it in the moment. You feel like you may need to make a point or to talk to that support worker or to reassert a, a particular status or, you know, to, to try and convince that client in a particular way um, and a way of thinking that's going to be helpful for the, the case overall or whatever. That actually, in order to stop that spiral from happening or, or that, that loop from happening, there needs to be a, something different and, and, and being compassionate and bringing something that is more soothing into the conversation. For, for you know everyone's kind of a winner um at yeah. the end of it and the trick with generating compassion for people you know even people who perhaps you're finding quite difficult it seems to be to think about their suffering and to connect with their suffering I mean that, that's um mm. ancient Buddhist wisdom isn't it but yeah but actually to think about what's so hard for them and just imagine you know their life and actually it, once you're doing that it is it, it is easier to kind of take their perspective and to be kind and you know compassionate to them for where they're at yeah, no, that's really true. And that's that's kind of, you know, the whole premise of what we try and do at Psychworks, but also in terms of, you know, the sort of the common thread of this whole podcast um, mm. is that it's it's about building that therapeutic lives and joining the, the client or the support worker or family member um, or indeed yourself at mm. the point of pain and suffering and sitting with that. Yeah. Um, rather than reacting to it or responding to it in a way that feeds the the, the challenge of it rather than mm. helps you know develop an exit strategy from it and I yeah it's really helpful to think of that I'm, I'm, I know we've said it um, I'm sure people have heard it before and I'm sure we've said it before but compassion is not I mean it's an easy word to say albeit it makes people feel a bit funny sometimes I do appreciate that 
But if you're able to sit with that discomfort of the word compassion, I just want to confirm again or, or to hear again that it, it isn't something that comes easily to many, many mm. people and that it is, it's about practice. And just like anything, it gets easier with a little bit, as you've highlighted, tiny bits of soothing here and there, um, noticing these are, um, it's a mindset it's not something that na- that comes, yeah, like I say, it doesn't, it's not something that just comes naturally to, to many people. I mean, that's presumably across the board. I mean, in your clinic, I know you work um, in personal injury, but outside of personal injury as well. Is that fair to say that it's not, it's just a human thing? Compassion is a really human thing, but unfortunately, the way we're raised and the way we're expected to live our lives kind of almost teach us to, to kind of to shut it down. And I think that's a widespread problem, you know, that that's that's really about our society and the way it's run and the way we expect people to behave. And yeah, I I think it's been lost because of the way we live our lives. Um, And and I think that's I want to say universal, but I I think probably some people have managed to avoid it. I just obviously haven't met them. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) yes, I suppose it's 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 unlikely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, in the work we do that someone's already got that sorted but Mm. I think there may be some universal universality to this idea but I I do I'm I'm really hopeful in some many of the conversations I'm hearing across the not just the personal injury professional world but just just in life in general that people are getting it a bit more maybe Mm. this idea of being able to look after ourselves because it always starts with us you know put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you can put it on everyone else or before you put it on anyone else um but I you know and I think that is slowly shifting and we're seeing more and more psychological theories that really demonstrate the worth and the value of all of this and it like you said I think a couple of times at least in conversation today it it is it's not a new idea this has been around Mm. for centuries and ancient Buddhist yeah. times, etc. This is yeah. not new stuff. It's just that, as you say, we've kind of forgotten it a little bit. Before we get carried away with all of that, um, we probably ought to draw this to a close for now. In terms of takeaways, are you able to sort of summarise the, the conversation today and um, help our, our audience just return back to um, where we are with compassion-focused therapy and, and how it could be useful for our clients and for ourselves in the personal injury world? We have three motivational systems, the threat, drive, and the soothing system. Our threat system gets activated by any kind of threat, and it can even be a threat that we're remembering or threat that we're imagining for the future. So it's very easy to end up with that threat system being overactivated. A lot of us cope with that by actually going into drive and doing lots of things some of which are helpful, some of which aren't. And actually, if we over rely on going into that drive state to avoid the feelings of threat, then we end up exhausted and burnt out. And actually a a much healthier, easier way of inhibiting that um, threat system is to is to engage the soothing system. And actually, we need that for our for our recovery and for our mental health. Um, And the for lots of reasons, a lot of us find that really hard. So compassion-focused therapy is really about helping us to be a bit more wise about which of our systems are being activated, you know, and, and um, encouraging more activation of the soothing system, less reliance on the drive system to counteract the threat system, 
and the mostly that's that it seems to work to be compassionate about it so to think about what you need what your client needs and how to achieve that and if it's not achievable in the moment then sitting with that and, and being okay with that in the moment mm-hmm. and yeah and so the three the three top tips were to notice those threat drive loops in yourself your clients and the care team and to summarize the, the three top tips they were to notice threat drive loops and then if you're noticing that then working out what the real threat is and what can be done about it and if you can't do anything about it then encouraging soothing instead think about how balanced the threat drive and soothing systems are what we're aiming for is balance not um that your soothing system is like massively activated and everything else is underactivated. we're aiming for balance and look at ways of gradually introducing more soothing into your life um, and we talked about ways of doing that so you know doing everyday activities with kindness to yourself speaking to yourself with a more compassionate voice thinking about what you need and nurturing yourself a bit and then finally fighting criticism with compassion so when you notice people being critical trying to kind of override your own threat system by by being compassionate towards them and soothing them rather than engaging in more kind of threat-based behavior like you know being um, defensive or or even critical as well brilliant thank you and I suppose it's not about letting yourself off the hook. It's just wising up to um, mm. a, something else that tends to be underactivated, which is the soothing system. Yeah, now that's incredibly helpful. Thank you, Dr. Alice Nichols, for a very helpful introduction to compassion-focused therapy and um, its relevance in the personal injury world. For those of you who are very interested in this, we'll put a couple of uh, links to websites that might be and uh, books that might be helpful to you, but. If uh, you want to talk a bit more about compassion-focused therapy, do get in contact with PsychWorks Associates and we will put you in touch with Dr. Nichols, who will be able to think through that with you, with your clients. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening today and um, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Before you go... If you enjoyed the episode today, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate it on whatever platform you're listening on and share and like on your social media profiles. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow and to be a continuous resource for all. And if there's any topic you wish for us to cover, please drop us a line on our website. Thank you so much for all your support.